Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to partake of what represents the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he commanded the church to observe, one of the two sacraments of the church, the other being baptism. Lord, communion is one of the means of grace that you give us as believers to grow. You also gave us a fellowship in of the saints, a prayer, the hearing of and the preaching of the word and the ministering of the word and reading your word. Lord, you've given those all as means of grace and also observing the sacraments. You've given all those to us, Lord, to grow as Christians, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as I come to you this morning in prayer, I thank you for the privilege of prayer, the privilege of being able to pray to a God who sees, the God who hears, the God who knows, the God who hears the prayers of his people. Fathers, I was thinking about this morning reading through First uh, Kings, I think it's the 17th chapter when we were, I saw Second Kings 17th chapter, when I was observing how the king of Assyria, Shalmaneser V, came in and seized Samaria and took Israel captive. How he led Israel into the apostasy that they were already in. How he plundered the city and how he replaced the city of Samaria with Assyrians. And Lord, he sent a priest back to Samaria to teach those people the ways of the Lord. But Lord, they would not have it because they were pagans. They burned incense to the pagan gods. They did not keep your commandments. And Lord, we see this going on in our nation today. We see where people want to worship the idols of our culture and don't want to worship the true God. It says here in the scriptures that one of the prophets, one of the priests that had been carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught the Assyrians how they should fear the Lord. Lord, your word says every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. Lord, this shows the waning influence that your name had among your own people because they chose rather to worship the idols of the pagan nations. They burned their children in the fire. They sacrificed. They practiced witchcraft and, and soothsaying and sold themselves, as your word says, to do evil in your sight, provoking you to anger. You told them to turn from their evil ways and keep your commandments according to all the law which you commanded their fathers. Nevertheless, or they were not here, but they stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers. 
who do not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected your statutes and your covenant that you made with their fathers and your testimonies which you had testified against them. They followed idols. They became idolaters. They went after the nations who were all around them concerning whom you charged them that they should not do like them. But Lord, what did they do? They left all the commandments of the Lord their God made for themselves molded images and two calves made a wooden image and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. They caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire. They practiced witchcraft and soothsaying and sold themselves to do evil in your sight to provoke you to anger. And Lord, you were angry with Israel and you removed them from your sight. You removed them from their land. And Lord, when I read this this morning, I thought about the consequences of sin and rebellion against you. That as believers, Lord, sometimes we we take sin lightly. We take idolatry lightly. We take pagan worship lightly. But Lord, there are dire consequences because sin never relents. Sin never lets up. Sin never takes its foot off the gas until it completely destroys the soul who is captive by it. So, Lord, my prayer this morning for our church, for our members, the members of this household of faith, that we hold fast to the rock who is higher than I, that we hold fast, Lord, to your truth, that we hold fast to your word, that we not be given into the paganism of our culture, the secular ideology that permeates our culture, the worship of self and the idolization of, of our identities, Lord. We, I, I, I pray that, Lord, you keep us from that. Keep us from the evil one. Keep us from evil influence. Our children, keep them from evil influence. Our, our high schoolers, Lord, they're, they're surrounded by evil. Keep us from the evil influence of social media. And Lord, help us to take those safeguards to do those things. Give us a mind to want to not be around evil. But to pursue that which is good. Pursue that which is right. Pursue that which is glorifying to you. We don't want to be like Israel. We don't want to be given over to that sin. Given over to that idolatry. Given over to that rebellion. Lord, we don't want to be referred to as stiff-necked. As stubborn. In obeying your commands. Lord we want to be counted among those who are faithful. So that when we stand before you. You will be to say to us. Well done good and faithful servant. Help us as a church to continue. To hold fast to your truth. To stand on your truth. No matter what it may cost us. And us as individuals too. Strengthen us Lord. Strengthen our hands. Strengthen our walk. Strengthen our faith in you. And Lord, I pray for all my fellow pastors, fellow brothers in Christ that I talked to via text this morning. Steve Mays and brothers Garbage and Josephus and Liberius, brother Sylvester in Zimbabwe, brother Josh Henderson, brother Anthony Cook, Bob St. John, Carlton Weathers, Phil Moser, Justin Holland, Cody Hale, other faithful men of God, brother Mark Young, Lord, that we labor well, that we shepherd the flock of God well, God well, that we hold fast and hold forth to your truth and that we 
encourage our parishioners to do the same, to walk after your ways, to not turn to the right hand or to the left. Strengthen us, Lord, where we're weak. Encourage us where we are discouraged. Help us to be faithful to you and to your word. Father, I ask you to fill me with your spirit as I preach this text this morning. As we finish out the second chapter, looking at Christ, our cornerstone. To always look to Christ, Lord. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the one around whom the church of Jesus Christ is built. May we always look to Christ. May we always look to him as our rock and our fortress. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Man, let us turn to the book of Ephesians. We're in the we're finishing out the second chapter this morning. You know, I was reading that passage in Second uh, Kings this morning, seventeen, when Israel was carried away, and man, it was very, very sobering to see that Israel had sinned against God and how much they had had descended into sin and rebellion against God and God uh, gave them over. He removed them from their sight as a judgment against them. He carried them out of their own land and those tribes, those ten tribes were scattered and they did not resettle Israel again but that was a divine punishment against those people and that just really had me thinking about the consequences of sin and rebellion against God if we continue down those ways guess what God gives us over over to that I mean our passage this morning I'm going to read it here closing out this chapter Paul tells us in Verses, it's supposed to be 19 through 22, although I have 14 through 18 on the screen. I was last week. Paul says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Remember, in this passage, he's talking about the church, the true church, those who are the regenerate believers. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. I want to begin this morning by reading some excerpts from a couple of articles that uh, came across my hearing when I was listening to um, a podcast from Albert Moeller. He's the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in um, Louisville, Kentucky, and he does this podcast called The Briefing, and it's like a daily briefing he does every uh, day of the week, Monday through Friday. And it is basically looking at news and events from a Christian worldview. And one of the articles that he uh, cited 
was a news report that came out about social media and mental health. And this is going to connect to what we're going to talk about this morning. It cited a study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is the CDC, which is a federal government agency. And it talked about the role that social media plays in mental health. It says here, in today's world, many of us rely on social media platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, YouTube, and Instagram, and many others. I was add TikTok to that list, right? Uh, to find and connect with each other. While each has its benefits, it's important to remember that social media can never be a replacement for real-world human connection. It requires in-person contact with others to trigger the hormones that alleviate stress and make you feel happier, healthier, and more positive. Ironically, for a technology that's designed to bring people closer together, spending too much time engaging with social media can actually make you feel more lonely and isolated. Isn't that something? And exacerbate, that means make worse, mental health problems such as anxiety and depression. If you're spending an excessive amount of time on social media and feelings of sadness, dissatisfaction, frustration, or loneliness are impacting your life, it may be time to re-examine your online habits and find a healthier balance. And it goes on to say that much of this began to take place with the advent of the smartphone in 2012 when the first iPhone came out. There you go, iPhone. The Surgeon General of the United States published a report back on May 23rd that calls attention to the growing concerns about the effects of social media use on children and adolescents' mental health and add to that adults too. He urges policymakers and the companies that make the social media platforms to share with parents the burden of managing children's and adolescents' social media use. So you know what's ironic about that? These companies create these social media platforms and then they blame the social media platforms for people's behavior toward them. They don't blame the person as if we don't have any type of moral agency. They blame the platforms when it's actually the people who are the more agents who make themselves addicted to the platforms. That's the way the world is. The world creates problems and then can't solve its own problems, so it creates problems to solve the problems that it already made. It creates an even greater problem. He says, uh, this is the uh, Vivek Murthy. Murthy, he is the Surgeon General of the United States. He calls youth mental health the defining public health issue of our time. He says up to 95% of teens between ages of 13 and 17 say they use a social media platform, according to the report. About a third say that they're scrolling, posting, or otherwise engaged with social media almost constantly. Most teenagers, when they have their phones out, they're on social media. At this point, we don't have enough evidence to say with confidence that social media is sufficiently safe for our kids. We have to now take action to make sure they are protecting our kids. And this is what a study found in 2019. And this was four years ago. You can imagine it's worse now, not better. In 2019, a study found that teens who spent more than three hours a day on social media faced double the risk of experiencing poor mental health outcomes, including 
symptoms of depression and anxiety. Notice it says symptoms of those things. As of last year, students in grades 8 and 10 who were surveyed said they spent even more time each day on these platforms, three hours and 30 minutes on average. The most popular social media platform on teens, of course, is TikTok, Snapchat, and Instagram. The Surgeon General's warning about social media comes as the rates of teenage depression, sadness, and hopelessness have skyrocketed over the past decade, especially among girls. Teen depression started to rise around 2012, a time that coincides with the popularity of smartphones. It was also a time that likes on posts became common and the algorithm started to become more sophisticated to keep people on social media for longer. That's clearly not a coincidence. The Surgeon General reported, report also blamed social media for perpetuating eating disorders, body dysmorphia, and low self-esteem. Those are all secular terms, by the way. Some evidence also suggests a possible link between excessive social media use and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD in teens. So what we're seeing here, we're talking about identity. We're talking about identity in the context of Ephesians and our identity in Christ. What we're seeing happening in our culture, and it's not just among teens. It's just that teenagers are more vulnerable because they're young and they're uh, pre their, their uh, frontal cortex has not fully developed until they're about 25 years old. Their prefrontal cortex, that's what it's called, the front part of your brain, hasn't fully formed yet, hasn't fully matured yet. But we see in our culture, everyone is searching for an identity. Everyone is searching for meaning. Everyone is searching for belonging. Everyone wants to belong to some, quote, identity group. If you've, ever, if you've ever filled out a job application lately, you will see about 20 different, quote, identity groups on those applications. Because our society is so fractured that everyone has to identify with some type of group in order to feel like they belong. And social media has exacerbated or made that problem even worse. You hear terms like people wanting to be seen. I felt seen or I feel seen. And in that article it talked about some reasons why people become addicted to social media. And this is so true that one of them was why they're addicted because they feel like they're missing something if they're not online. They feel like they're missing out on something. That is endemic of every teenager, right? <laughs> that they don't want to miss out on anything. They want to always be in. They want to always be in the know. They want to always know what is going on. They don't want to feel left out. Fear of missing out. It's called FOMO. F-O-M-O. It's the fear of missing out. 
Another thing is what social media does. It, it promotes inadequacy about your life and your appearance. Because what do we post on social media? Our best moments. All of us do. Amen. If you can't say amen, as Bodie Balcom said, say ouch. We, we post our best moments on social media. And what we're doing, we're perpetuating an image that everything is fine in our life. That our family's fine. That our home is nice. That our vehicles are the best. That we look the best. We make sure we have the right angles. We make sure we put the right filters in to take away all those age blemishes that happen with father time and, and uh, gravity starts taking over and our skin starts sagging and everything not as, 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 as tight as it used to be. We present this image to the world that everything is fine. Everything as we see in the country is hunky-dory. Not a problem in the world. We present that to people and you have people who what they call doom scrolling. That's what they call it. They're scrolling through Facebook and they're looking at all this stuff and they look at their life and say, man, I wish I could go on. I, they say like they always at the beach. They always on the river. They always in their boat. Man, that's a nice fish they caught. I wish I could catch a fish. I'm just catching brim. We see all this on social media. And we have feelings of inadequacy about our life or our appearance. Social media also promotes isolation. This, this, this lie about the internet is going to make us all connected is a lie. We are more depressed now with all this technology. We are more lonely now. People are more lonely but yet we have over 1.6 million apps in the app store. But people are still lonely. People still feel isolated. People still feel, quote, unseen. Why? Because of identity idolatry. I mean, when I was teaching high school in the late 90s and early 2000s, you had the goth girls. You know, the girls that dyed their hair black and had the black nails and they wore all black and had the, the heavy black eyeshadow and black mascara. You know, that was like an identity group, you know, the goth girls. They, they went through that goth stage. You had the middle school girls that went through the putting the purple color in their hair and the pink color and all these different experiment, uh, experimental colors in their hair. That was like a phase like an identity crisis phase that they went through. Now you have the prominence of septum rings. You know, septum rings are those rings that go right here in the septum part of your nose, that cartilage right there between your two nostrils. You see more people with those now. That's like a, a social contagion, and, and people can actually wear them on their jobs. There was a time where you couldn't even do that. You go on social media, you see more twerking videos. You see more fight videos on social media. You see more exhibition driving, you know, people doing donuts and in the middle of streets, the middle of highways. One of them did it in the middle of the interstate in Birmingham just a couple of weeks ago on I-65. 
All these things permeate social media. Why? Because everybody wants to belong to something. Everyone wants to be part of something. It's called identity idolatry. People now, when you talk to them, sometimes they talk about some type of, I don't know, disability they have, some type of diagnosis they have, uh, some type of car they have, some type of material possession. They identify themselves by those things first. That's the first thing you know about them. Hi, my name is Ronald. I'm a diabetic. Why do you need to know that? That's not my identity. That's not who I am. I'm not what I'm just saying. That's, that's just an example. It's called identity idolatry. People make their identity an idol. And that they make that who they are. Their reason for existence is their identity. Think about the sexual revolution cult, the LGBTQIA silent P pedophile plus. It's a silent P. That's what the plus is for. It's going to be added to. It's all about what? Their identity. What do you identify as? Do you identify as a Christian? Do you identify as a male? Do you identify as a female? Do you identify as cisgender, which is a made-up word? Do you identify as transgender or trans man or trans woman do you you hear these terms identify what do you identify as and we begin to use it in our language because our culture suffers from identity idolatry we've been sucked into the secular leftist language war and we're losing that battle because we are merging right in with them and we as Christians are acting as if we're not citizens of a different world. That's just my introduction. So this is what Paul says here to us. He's saying that as Gentiles, as new believers in Christ, we are now. Verse 19. Three principles here. We're one nation, we're one family, and we're one temple. That's what we're going to deal with today as far as principles are concerned. First of all, Paul says we're one nation. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. When I was going back over my notes last night, I, I was just so excited. Just thinking about that language that Paul uses in here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When we look at our world, when we think about our world and what takes place in our world, the first thing we should think of is who we are in Christ and look at everything through those lens. Paul basically saying believing Gentiles are now fellow citizens with the saints. Philippians 3 and 20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. We, when we are in Christ, guess what? We become new residents. We take on a new home. <coughs> we take on a new identity as fellow citizens with other saints. The only true community that exists is the community of saints. 
There's no such thing as an LGBTQ community. There's no such thing as a black community. Because every single black person doesn't think the same way. Newsflash. They don't. Every single quote LGBTQIA 2S plus person doesn't think the same way. Those are not true communities. The only true community that exists is those of us who are fellow citizens with the saints of God everywhere. Paul didn't say that we're fellow citizens with the Jews or with the saints. I'm sorry, but he said with the saints. The new church is no longer Jew or Gentile. The new church doesn't take on an ethnic or national identity anymore. You notice how the culture, how the uh, culture has separated even Christians. You have, quote, evangelical Christians. Then you have black Christians, the black church. Those are thoroughly unbiblical categories. We are just believers. We are one new humanity. And that's where identity lies. We're no longer Americans or British citizens in the truest spiritual sense because our true home is not Anderson, Alabama. Our true home, as Paul said in Galatians 4 and 26, is the Israel that is above. Always remember this, saint. This earth is not your home. This is a temporary dwelling place. This earth is not our home. And I've said it a million times and I keep saying it. For the unbeliever, this world is the best that it gets. For us, it gets way better than this sinful world. Our citizenship is in a greater place, a more transcendent place. We have a new home. We have a new citizenship. And we also have a new family. Paul says we are members of the household of God. Man, praise the Lord for that. We're no longer part of this world. We're no longer, this world is foreign to us. I was telling my son that last night, when you, you, these, these, these friends that you have, Make sure that they're friends that are going to lead you to Christ and not away from Christ. Because when you're of this world, you're not going to love Christ. The Bible says you cannot love the world or the things in the world. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life are not from the Father. That's second, first John 2, I think 15 and 16. Love not the world. When it's talking about the world, it's talking about the systems, the ideologies, the philosophies of this world that got us in the mess that we're in right now. You don't love that. Because those things are against God. They're against nature. They're against God's design against God's order. The things of this world will always be opposed to God. We're no longer part of this world. Yes, we live in it. 
Yes, we ought to be salt and light. Yes, we ought to witness the gospel to others. Yes, we ought to love our enemies. We ought to pray for them. But we are not to set our affections on the world. Why? Because we have a different citizenship. We're part of a different family. We are part of the eternal family of the triune Godhead. We're in a different family, people. When I meet a saint, I don't care what church they go to. I don't care where they live. If I meet fellow believers, when I'm out to eat somewhere in Birmingham or, or where, whether I'm on vacation and I meet some believers, you know, I'm just as happy to see them. Because guess what? We have something in common. We're all fellow citizens. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ and we receive each other as such. That's what makes the Christian community better because we have an eternal home. We have an eternal destination. We have eternal life through Christ Jesus. That is something that no other group on this earth can claim. We're part of an eternal family. We are the children of a heavenly father. Man, praise God for that. And we're joint heirs with Christ, as Paul says in Romans 8 and 17. You tell me what other group has that. But the saints do. So Paul is telling these Ephesians, this is where your identity should be. And God is telling us today through the word of God, this is where our identity is. Our identity is in the fact that we are saints and that we're members of the household of God. That is where we root ourselves. We don't root ourselves in the sifting, shifting sands of the culture. Because they change from day to day. We're part of the household of God. I, mean, I, I, I thank the Lord for that. Christ changed all the divisions that we see in our world. All the ways that our society is fractured. Christ came to do away with that. His work on the cross. I was talking earlier about people who are looking for belonging through social media. We as believers have a great opportunity to tell them, I got something better. I can show you something better that social media cannot do for you. Is social media bad? No. It's how people use it. It's the sinful heart of man. that leads man to become addicted to social media. But we can show people something better. I know something better than that. I know something that can satisfy the longings of your soul. I know a community, a true community. I'll tell you this, as long as we've been a church, unless I don't know someone to tell me, I don't think anyone who's ever come through here can say that they did not feel like they belonged or they were not treated like they belonged in this church. 
we received every person who's ever come through these doors as a church. As far as I know, I haven't heard anything contrary. But that's only a testament to God's work in our lives and God's work in our church through the preaching and ministry of the word and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That's what that's attributed to. You got some families that castigate their own. Young man that got shot over here on Christine Saturday. Uh, he was shot by his own cousin. On 1010, uh, over there in those apartments, over there on Christine, right by the hospital. I think it was, yeah, Saturday, yesterday. Got shot by his own cousin. And we talking about close cousins, they had the same last name, so they got to be like first cousins. And the boy's only 20 years old, they shot him. He was up visiting from Florida. That's what it said in the, uh, in the newspaper. They're the same family. They're relatives. We can show people there's something better. There's something greater. Christians, do we sin against each other sometimes? Yes. But the great thing is we have forgiveness in Christ. And we can forgive others as we have been forgiven. That's something we can show the world how Christian forgiveness truly looks. Because that's what they need. People are searching for belonging in all the wrong places. And again, the world is going to say, you can belong by downloading this app. You can belong by spending eight hours a day or nine hours a day or ten, ten hours a day scrolling through TikTok videos. And you know, like I said, those algorithms are designed to keep you on those devices. These social media companies are not stupid. They know how to keep people glued. It was so funny. Uh, we was out at, at Saul's yesterday, you know, waiting for our food. And there was another table of five people in the corner. And they were like, probably like in their late 20s, early 30s. All five of them were on their phones. That's what you see now. You see a bunch of teenagers together. You see 10 of them together. Guess what? All of them are on their phones. You know, they may say little words to each other here and there. But all of them are doing what? They're on their phones. And what are they on most likely? Social media. Or texting, which is still social media. You know, we try to communicate our, uh, you know, it doesn't substitute for face-to-face -face communication. No matter how many times you type in all caps. <laughs> no matter how many emojis you use. It still does not take the place of face-to-face -face community together. Same thing with church. You can't, quote, have church online. Now, if a person is sick or shut in, like Brother Harvey's probably watching us from his uh, room in Brookwood, you're sick and shut in, you watch church online, that's fine. But you can't solely watch church online and say that you're a part of the church because you're not even in, in, in fellowship with the saints. That's how you belong. That's how people can pray for you. That's how people can love you and shepherd you and encourage you. Not through an occasional text message. It's always good to 
see you face to face. I remember when the whole COVID thing happened uh, three years ago, and, you know, we didn't meet for a while, but, man, we was all itching. <laughs> we was like, okay, we, we, okay, we're done. We're done. We, okay. We, we did it for, like, maybe three months, and we was like, nah, we, we just can't keep doing this. Because we wanted to see each other. We wanted to be in fellowship with each other. Yeah, some churches that didn't meet for like two years. No, that's a disgrace. That's a disgrace to the ecclesia, to the gathering of the believers. To not meet for two years? Fellowshipping with each other? Seeing each other's faces? Don't you know how encouraging that is when you actually see a person's face? You know, when they're unmasked? You can see the smile. You can see the warmness in their face and their facial expressions and how encouraging that is. Like I said in that article, the more people scroll social media, the more they have symptoms of depression and anxiety. There's something about being around people, being in fellowship, that activates the endorphins in your body to, to, to give you a little pep in your step when you're around people. God created us for community. When he made Adam, Adam had all the animals to tend to. Adam named all the animals. You have to understand this context back in Genesis, the second chapter. Adam had named all the animals. God told him to name all the animals, and he did. He had all the trees of the garden. He had the plants and, and everything. He had all of that. But what did God say to Adam? Man should not be alone. It's not good for man to be what? Alone. He had everything else. He had animals. He had plants. He had birds. But he was still alone. So what did he do? He made for him a suitable helper, a helpmeet. He was showing Adam and showing us as believers that we need each other. It is not good for us to be alone. Isolate ourselves. God made us for relationship, for community. It betrays the body of Christ when a Christian says, I don't want to be around them. I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Show me book, chapter, verse, and context, please. We're made for, just as human beings, period, just through common grace. We are made for community. Now, I know some people may be introverted, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, nothing sinful about that. But even introverts need a human touch here and there. Or they'll wither and shrivel away, and they'll die early death. Don't you know people can die from loneliness? Because loneliness is endemic to the human condition. It is, it is something that is not good for us. So people can die in isolation and in loneliness and, 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 and by themselves and shutting themselves off from everyone. And then they wonder why they're so miserable. Because you're not letting anybody come around you to laugh with you, to talk with you, to, to give you the human touch. Paul is telling us 
Christ changed all that. We are citizens together. We're not citizens in isolation. We are members of the household of God. And God is over that house. We have this relationship with each other and we have this relationship with our Heavenly Father. The church is seen as a household. Paul talks about it in, in 1 Timothy uh, 3 and 2 Timothy 2. He talks about the church being a household of faith. And that's what we are. Now, in, in a Roman context, in, in the context in which Paul is writing, to be a member of a household meant refuge and protection. As much as the master was able to uh, provide. And it also meant identity and gave the security that comes with a sense of belonging. That's what Warren Worsby said. And this is what Paul is saying to the church that we being in the household of God, we have refuge and we have protection. We have security and we have safety. Think about being in your own household. Whether it's an apartment, a house, a trailer, it doesn't matter. It's something about the safety and security of being what? In your household. There's something of, of surety, something of refuge that comes with that. And as members of the household, this household in verse 20 is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So we're built on the foundation of the ministry of the apostles and prophets. Now, about that, you know, some commentators think that these, the apostles and prophets were foundational because they proclaimed the very words of God, and that is what, what they did, the, the prophets of old and also the New Testament office of prophets. Now, I will say this. Despite what you see out there, there are no apostles and prophets today. No true apostles and no true prophets of today. Okay? We got people going around proclaiming themselves to be apostles. Chief apostles. We got uh, a so-called two apostles leading that church up there by where you stay, Emily. The church with the lion in front of it. Two doors down from the apostate church that's on the corner. They, they claim to be led by a husband and wife. Wasn't a husband elevated to apostle, uh, friend? Quote, had an ele elevation service. <laughs> but there are no true apostles. And I'll explain why. Um, in his commentary on the book of Ephesians, Grant Osborne said this. He says, apostles that we have seen were those specially commissioned and sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. This includes the 12, 
the original 12 disciples that were in, in the book of Acts, and Paul himself together with one or two others. They provided the essential link with their master, and their role was a foundational one. Although Paul on occasion used the term apostle in a non-technical sense to signify a messenger of the churches, the overwhelming number of references in his letters are to apostles in a technical sense who were called and sent by Christ himself. One of the qualifications for an apostle was they had to have seen the risen Christ. None of these so-called apostles around here have seen Jesus, the risen Christ. If they say they saw a risen Christ, they're lying to you. The office of apostle closed after the death of the apostle John, who was the oldest of them. The office of apostle had ceased. Paul saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts the ninth chapter. When he was on the road and the heavens opened up and, and Christ said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was the risen Christ who was talking to him. A voice had shone from heaven. A light had shone from heaven, rather. So apostles are those who actually seen the risen Christ and were sent by Christ. Because these people who call themselves apostles now, they'll say the word simply means he who is sent. And they'll just stick with that basic definition. But it's a little more to it than just someone who is sent. Okay? The apostles also received the revelation of God through the Spirit to understand the mystery of Christ. And their task was to proclaim his gospel to the Jews and in Paul's case the Gentiles the apostles also wrote scripture okay you have the apostle John who wrote the gospel of John he wrote first second third John and he wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ you have the apostle Peter who wrote first and second Peter you had the Apostle James, who was one of the founders of the early church, who wrote the book of James. Of course, you had the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 of the New Testament books. Almost half the New Testament Paul wrote. Of course, you had Matthew and Mark. They were the first apostles also. They wrote the gospel of Matthew and Mark. Luke was not an apostle. He was a, he was a eyewitness to those things. He wrote the book of Luke and Acts. So the apostles actually wrote scripture. No apostle today is writing scripture. Why? Because the Canaan is closed. So someone calls himself an apostle. You ask them, what scriptures have you written? Where's your Canaan? I don't see it in here. I don't see it in these 66 books. What scripture have you written? They're false. Just like these false prophets around here. People call them prophetess, prophets and prophetesses. They're false. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets of that day. The prophets who came before and during the time of Paul. 
That's who the church is built on. Because these apostles revealed the mystery, the great mystery that was revealed was the inclusion of the Gentiles into the body of Christ. Because remember, the gospel was first to go to the Jews. God revealed it to Peter first in Acts the 10th chapter that he shows no partiality. Peter took the gospel to Cornelius' household. Cornelius was a Gentile. That was commissioned by God to do that. That was the great mystery. So when Paul is saying this, we're built as a household of God on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It wasn't only them because he says here. Christ himself being the what cornerstone. And that is key. Christ is the foundation on which the apostles and prophets built the church. Christ is the one. He's the foundation. The cornerstone, if you look at especially older buildings, like you go downtown Anniston, uh, you look at the buildings from the 1800s, like the Caldwell building on the corner where the Waterworks building is, the old Regions Bank Tower. You see the arch. You see the, I, I like old architecture. You'll see the arch windows and you'll see the little V-shaped stone at the top of those windows. That's called the cornerstone. And the cornerstone would be laid first and all the bricks around it would be laid. You didn't lay the bricks and then the cornerstone. The cornerstone was always built first. It was the foundation. Or when builders were built, they always built the cornerstone in the corner. It was a cornerstone and the rest of the building was built around that. Think about this. You may not notice this. Whenever a multi-story building is built, guess what is built first? The elevator shaft. You may not notice that. I mean, if you think about it, you can't build an elevator shaft once all the walls and stuff are up. But when a, a multi-story building is built that has elevators and stairwells, they build the elevator shaft first and they build the building around it. That's kind of like a cornerstone because that's the foundation. The first part of a bank that is built is the vault. And they build the bank around the vault because the vault is the most secure part of the bank. I worked in one. I know. Very secure. Once that uh, timer is set, it ain't no opening that vault door until that timer runs out. You're just going to be stuck in there. And ventilation goes out because there's no air conditioning in the vault. Not a good place to be stuck if you're a bank robber. But anyway, the point is they build the vault first and they build the bank around the vault. Why? Because that's, that's the most secure place in that building. And that's where everything is built around and on. So when we look at the church, Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church. He is who everything else is built around. Our membership in the household of God has its foundation. Our house is built on the foundation of Christ, our cornerstone. Our rock. That's why he's referred to as our rock. Our rock and our redeemer. Our shield. 
Isn't that a great privilege? That the universal church, one thing we have in common is Christ as our cornerstone. So Christ being a cornerstone ensures that a strong building is square and stable. Christ ensures that his church is square and stable to the point where he said in Matthew 16 when he told Peter upon this word rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell will not prevail against it why because who does the church have as its foundation Christ you have the culture that is trying to destroy the church the church is the last institution that has not fallen that's why they come at Christians so hard. That's why they try to call us bigots and, and transphobes. Because we don't think men can get pregnant or that men can become women and women can become men and children should have their bodies mutilated and chemically castrated, taking drugs in order to be something that they can't be. And we say that, oh, you transphobe, you bigot. Say on. It's not going to change the truth. They're coming after the church. Now the apostate churches are falling. The apostate denominations are bowing the knee. The apostate pastors and, and preachers are bowing the knee. But those of us who are standing on Christ as the chief cornerstone, guess what? They can't take us down. They won't. They won't. The scripture says when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Man. When the enemy comes in like a flood, and he does come in like a flood. The enemy is relentless. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they are relentless in their assaults on us as believers. But guess what? The Spirit of the Lord lift up a standard. Standard is a guard, a sentinel that stands guard and protects us against the darts from the enemies. Like putting on that shield of faith, as Paul said, that you may be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked. Why? Because Christ is our cornerstone. He is our stability. He is our ark of safety. You're not going to find it on social media. Where everybody is fickle, fake, and phony. You're not going to find it there. You're only going to find it in Christ. Your only refuge is Christ. Being part of the household of God. That is the gospel message to the world. Your refuge is not in your phone. It is not a hundred apps that you have to scroll through to find something because you're bored. No, your refuge is in Christ being a member of the household of faith. It is a privilege. And we're part of the universal church. We're part of something worldwide. We're part of something more extraordinary than we realize. As believers, we must understand that. Amen.
Last two verses here. One temple. In whom the whole structure being joined together. So Christ is the cornerstone. Then Paul builds out from that. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in Christ, remember, identity, in Christ, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. These verses draw together all of verses 11 through 22. The whole building, this is talking about the church. The church is an organic unit. The whole building is being erected. We're joined together and we're rising. It's like a building. The foundation is done and that building just rises as it's being built. just rises and goes up together. They don't build one wall and then build a second wall and then build a third wall. When you see builders come up, guess what? All four of those walls come up together. That is a picture of the body of Christ. As people are added to the flock, as people are added to the household, guess what? The house keeps getting built. But guess what? Christ is the cornerstone, so it's not going to fall. It's not going to tip over. It's not going to be like the leaning tower of Pisa. It's not going to be like the twin towers that fell because planes crashed into them. Tragically. No. The church, the body of Christ, the building of the temple of God is not going to be destroyed. Stone upon stone is being built stone is being built every time a believer comes to faith in Christ guess what that's another stone added to the building praise God that's another brick that's another layer every time hell is depopulated every time someone is converted from uh, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light guess what that's one more stone that's one more brick being laid in that building Praise God for that. That is what happens. God is still building his church. Christ says what? I will build my church. He will build it. It is certain. Christ is still building his church. No matter how much people try to come up against the church and the saints of God, that is not going to stop Christ from building his church. And that's what we take confidence in as believers. That no one can thwart the plans of God. No one can thwart the mission of Christ in this world. No matter how hard they try. And they're going to try. They're going to keep trying. They're gonna, it's like beating their head against the wall. It's going to get bloody. They're going to still do it because they cannot prevail. Why? Because it is built on the foundation of Christ as the cornerstone. It is continually being built up. Praise God for that. Stone upon stone. And upon those stones, there is unity. These are not some jagged stones that are some little mishmash stones. No, each stone fits together with the other one. That shows the oneness of the body of Christ. Regardless of ethnicity, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of your medical diagnosis, regardless of all these external things, regardless of what part of the world you're from, Regardless of how functional or dysfunctional your family is, it does not matter. When you're part of the body of Christ, you are one with everyone else. You're on the same plane with other saints. 
You're not a misfit. There are no misfits in God's house. There's not that one brick that just had one job. <laughs> that's just sticking out from everybody else. No, we all fit together, as Paul says. Joined together, that togetherness, that oneness. Growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Joined together, the church becomes a holy temple. And Paul sees the church as God's temple because God dwells in his temple by means of the spirit. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3. Peter says, 1 Peter 2, that we are as living stones. We are built up to be both the spiritual house and the holy priesthood that inhabits the household of God. God dwells in us by his spirit and we are his temple. This can only be made possible in Christ. It's our union in Christ that draws us together and makes up his holy temple. We are the new Israel. We are the new church that unites all races and all ethnic groups, all skin colors into one temple in the Lord. That's where our identity, that's why it's so important to have it in Christ. That's why Paul ends it by saying, in him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. In Christ is where our identity lies. Not in any type of external earthly thing that's going to pass away. That is part of this world and part of this world system. There's not going to always be social media. And social media is not even that social as we established earlier. It's going to pass away. Social media is not going to always be around. It's not. It's going to be something else to replace it. Why? Because we're idolaters. We have to create idols. Our hearts are always creating idols. Man is going to always find another way to worship anything other than the one true God. Right now, it's social media. What is it going to be next? We don't know. We didn't know social media was going to be around. I mean, when the first iPhone came out, it was a big deal. I mean, Facebook was out at that time in MySpace, but it wasn't nothing like it is now. I wonder if I could pull up my old MySpace page. Probably not. I forgot the username and everything, but anyway, it's not going to always be around. But what are people doing? They're treating it like it's the ultimate thing. We got all this social media. And yet people are still more, just think about that, the irony of, as we said in the article, people are more depressed, feeling more lonely, more anxiety. The more time you spend on social media, the more depression and anxiety, the more symptoms of depression and anxiety you're going to exhibit. But yet, what do we do? 
Still spend more time on social media because we think that that's a cure for our depression, symptoms of depression and anxiety, and we feel more depressed and more anxious, but yet we still spend more time on it. Instead of looking to Christ, instead of planting our identity in him and what he has done for us and who we are in him as believers, we are part of the only true community. Four things I want to know as we close. First thing, we need to recognize, and this is kind of summing up this whole chapter. We need to recognize that we live in an age, we live in a day, excuse me, where we're preoccupied with achievement and we're preoccupied with selfishness and self-centeredness. This chapter is all about looking to Christ and not looking to self. This chapter refutes the idea that man is responsible for his salvation, that we can find our salvation in, in, in anything else. Because what did Paul say at the beginning of this chapter? You were dead. And who had to make you alive? God. That refutes the whole self-love, self-interest, self-help. That refutes all that. Salvation through achievement. It refutes all that. This chapter tears all of that down. God has achieved everything for us in Christ. It had nothing to do with us. That's one thing that this chapter does. If we think that we can take credit at any point, it denies the gospel. This chapter focuses on God through Christ and his work through Christ. Number two, we must acknowledge that we live in a very individualistic culture. My truth, right? You know, I was thinking about this yesterday when I was in the kitchen. I remember where I was when I had this thought. I'm weird like that. I was in the kitchen seasoning. No, I was seasoning my uh, leg quarters. And I remember I had this thought. Our culture is so individualistic that you have people writing memoirs in their 30s. You do. You haven't lived long enough. <laughs> but our culture is so individual centered that you got, you know, the memoirs like, a, a, you know, writing about your life and you're only 35 years old, you're only 40 years old and you're writing a memoir. You can write a second one when you turn 70. That's how individualistic our culture is. <coughs> you know, to me, that's, I'm not going to read a memoir of a 35-year-old. You're younger than me. I got 16 years on you. What can I learn from someone who, who <laughs> is 15, 16 years younger than me? Not a lot. I'm sorry. But anyway, 
We live in such an individualistic culture. And we must be reminded, as Paul does, that we are part of something as believers. We're part of something cosmic, but it's real. We're part of what? The body of Christ. We're part of the household of God. We are one with other believers. That crushes the individual mindset where people say, I, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. We have a shared unity in Christ and a shared love for one another. We must get rid of any suggestion of superiority as believers and realize that we have a shared inheritance. We have a shared faith. Thirdly, we have the issue of good works. Paul said in uh, was Philippians 2 and 10 that we are created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. That God had ordained before time that we should walk in them. In other words, the fruit of our salvation should be evident in how we do. How we live, rather, and in what we do. Sometimes we can look at life and say, man, where's God in all of this? Because life can get so busy, can it? We have the pressure of time and all those things. But I'm going to tell you this. The good work that you're doing is the work that you're doing. It's not some type of special work that's set aside. Whatever you're doing, you're doing the good work that God has called you to do. Because remember, everything that you do is to God's glory. You are the will of God. Now, if you're doing nothing, that's not a good work. <laughs> okay? If, you're not, if you have time to serve others and you're not doing it, you're not doing a good work. But whatever you're doing, you're doing a good work. Whether it's gospel ministry work, whether it's providing for your family, providing for your children, going to school, being a godly example to your peers and your classmates and your teachers, that's doing a good work. Taking care of children at the daycare or whatever the case may be, that is a good gospel work. And the fourth thing the life that we're living now is a life that is to be lived in Christ. Remember, we are no longer strangers and aliens, as Paul said, to the covenants of promise. We're not estranged from the uh, commonwealth of Israel. We're no longer strangers. Paul said this in our text today. We're citizens with the saints. So we now live as if we are in Christ. We can't say that we're no good. 
We say that I can't really do anything for the Lord. We can't say I'm not like this other Christian. Because that ignores the whole tenor of this chapter. We can't compare ourselves to other believers. I can't compare myself to other pastors. I can't compare our church to other churches. We need to remind ourselves that once we are in Christ, there's indeed significance in who we are. Again, that's where our identity is. It is Christ who gives us our worth. We don't get it from the world. We don't get it from how many likes or shares or, or, or whatever we get on our posts. Or how many social media followers we have. I always talk about that meme where I saw on Facebook about 10 years ago it was a, a, a man who had gotten old and it was a drawing of his funeral and there's like five people scattered in the crowd and then somebody the little air bubble said uh, I thought he had 5,000 Facebook friends but only five people showed up at his funeral get it? But he had 5,000 Facebook friends. Because that's not where your significance is. It is who you are in Christ. God didn't make a mistake with you. You're not a loser. You're not in competition with others. And I want to end by saying this. It is such a blessing. And I hope we understand this as, as, as we grow and mature in the Lord. These truths that we've dealt with these last few uh, weeks. I hope that we understand the blessings that we have in Christ. That God has for us. That the almighty God. The creator. Of the heavens and earth. And everything in it. He stooped down. He condescended. And he involved us. In bringing glory. To him. That is not something that God had to do. God is involving us. In his redemptive plan. In his redemptive work. On this earth. That God would stoop to include us. Man, we should be so grateful for that. That the sovereign, God can do this all by himself. He don't need us to do it. But that the almighty God will condescend and use us, fallen people, to bring glory to his name. What a great privilege. What great love. Isn't God gracious? Let us pray. Lord, I thank you that you're so gracious that you involve us in your plan of redemption. You involved us in doing your work in this world. You involve us, Lord, of being members of your household, of the household of faith.
Lord, I thank you that those of us who are believers in here, the saints, that we belong to the greatest community, the greatest family, that no other family, no other so-called community on this earth can duplicate. Lord, help us in here as believers to not be caught up in identity idolatry. To not make an idol of any external factors, external things, the things of this world, the, the categories of this world. Let us not make those uh, the, the, the center of our identity or the substance of our being. But Lord, help us to root ourselves in Christ, who we are in him, what we have in him, what he says about us, that we are his and, and he is ours and, and we are co-heirs with Christ. We're joint heirs with Christ. We're one with Christ. Christ is our cornerstone. It is upon him that our faith is built. It's like the old hymn that says, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ's righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock I sand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Lord, let that be our refrain. Let that be our hope. And Father, I pray for those who are unbelievers who will hear this message that that right now they are hopeless they are without hope in this world they're without God and without hope in this world they are that is their reality but Lord that doesn't have to remain their reality help us as believers and other believers to to share the gospel with them that there is something greater there's something better there's a family that is more transcendent than what they think they belong to here on this earth that social media is not going to save them. That social media is not going to provide them with the belonging that they are looking for. That all these so-called identity groups that our culture has will not do it for them. They are insufficient. Lord, help us to remind them of that. To call them to come to Christ and be saved. To hear the gospel and believe. And be, as Paul said in Ephesians 1 and 8, Accepted in the beloved. Because Lord, they're like a dog chasing his tail. They're running in circles. They, they're never going to find that satisfaction outside of you. Lord, help us to show that to them. Lord, use this message to your glory. Use it to encourage the faithful. And also use it, Lord, to convict sinners and bring them to a saving faith in you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.